Thank you so much to everybody for joining this morning. Um, it's great to spend time with you. Key word, spending time, and I'll come on to that in a second. And as, as Tim always seeks to make us laugh and Joe outlined, why trust is important is actually not half of the challenge. It's getting everybody else that's not on this forum this morning to buy into whatever we want to do to incite change. And so that's why I thought I'd share a leadership perspective. I spend a good proportion of my time rallying troops and selling stories, whether it's internally or externally. Okay, so I'll start by asking you a couple of questions, if I may. Tell me what it is, pop it into chat because we can see it pop up. What can you see here? What does this mean to you, this image? Give you a couple of minutes, get on the fingers. What can you see? Okay, interesting, interesting, thoughtful, thinking, pensive, curiosity, loving it. Thank you, gang. Absolutely. When I look at this face, I see the future. This is Millie. She's nine years old and she wants to be, and I quote, an aeronautical engineer. I haven't got the heart to tell her it's engineer. She loves yoga. She plays um, with all sorts of different things like Lego and Meccano and things that I was told as a small person I wasn't to play with because they were not girls' toys. And in her education system now, she's learning about things like diversity, inclusion, well-being, and health and mental health. And these are things that I don't know about you, they were not part of my education system 30 odd years ago. She is effectively one of many faces of the future generation. And the reason I want to call her out now is as a leader, I spend most of my energy looking at what's on the horizon and trying to understand and anticipate where I can capitalize on opportunities or threats, as I'm sure many leaders within your organizations do the same. But it's important to just have a little look at those thoughtful, pensive eyes. If this is the next generation, we need to be very mindful as we create anything that we do now and any change that we incite now, that we think of these little people because in 15 years time, Millie will select who she puts her allegiance with and who she wants to work for based on a very different set of criteria than certainly I did 20 years ago. I remember the first conversation I had with my father and I joined a global grad scheme in an FMCG organization. And he said, what are you being paid? One component of comp and ben. It wasn't about a sense of belonging when he asked. Millie's generation, are going to expect very different things. So my second question is, when you look at this little face and you think about the capacity that each of you have, what are you going to do in your strategy and make it a strategic imperative to make Millie and others central to that? I think it was Michael Bedford popped up a moment ago, one of my favorite things that people say, so thanks for that, buddy. It is absolutely about having a human-centered mindset and strategy. And if we're very honest with ourselves, if we take a grotesque mirror and we ask ourselves at the very beginning, honestly, how much of our strategy is about humans, I'm sure there's some room for improvement for sure. So I mentioned the leadership perspective. So if I break down the components of my role, um, I'm sure this is the same for many CEOs or um, MDs in organizations or even functional leaders in a C-suite. The three components are made up of this horizon discussions, making sure you gather as much intelligence as possible to allow you to make informed decisions and build great plans and strategies and understand how to differentiate knowing what the threats and the opportunities are on the horizon. 
and in my industry in food, which is an absolute pleasure to be part of and a real privilege, we're constantly thinking about trends, attitudes and behaviours that consumers will have to food. And if you go back to the insight we already have on people like Millie, I'm sure everyone has a Millie in their life or a Bob or a Dave or, or whatever that little person or that little face is, whether that person is a grandchild, a niece, a nephew, a friend, we're all connected to the next generation. And that is free insight. And whilst we want to make changes right now and we want to incite change in our existing population, consider that it's not that far away that the next generation come to our organizations. The same goes for strategy and planning. I said all of us would be advantageous to have a little look, a hard look at our current strategy. If I review my UK strategy, part of a really fantastic global network, if I'm honest, there's still an awful lot we can do, not only to make it more safe for the people that are in the existing organization, but to pave the way for the millies and more. And then, of course, most of my life at the moment is uh, in a pandemic and in a crisis mode, talking about recovery and resilience. It's words like that that are synonymous with measurement. And I want to call out future and horizon strategy and measurement because they're three fundamental pieces of language that when you go off these calls this afternoon and you go and incite change and you feel well and truly recruited, you're going to have to bleed those words into pepper your discussions and your selling pitches with words that leaders will relate to. Okay, so uh, this is not my UK board. Um, they don't wear suits, incidentally. But actually, if you look at what's on our horizon and using language like future, one of the biggest things that all leaders are, are kind of losing sleep over right now is not a geopolitical threat and it's not an advancement in technology. It's actually how do we gain train and retain the very best talent we possibly can. And we know that they're going to be more humans and less jobs. And as Joe rightly said, we know that we're going to want the best of the best and we're going to need a culture that these people feel recruited to be part of a belonging and a purpose for. And we all read, all leaders, great leaders are reading the same Gallup data, McKinsey. We're all reading the Harvard Business Reviews and the PwC statements that tell us that we need to have a human investment. But I go back to that first question. Do you have a strategic imperative? Most of us do. And for those that aren't clear on it, then there's some, some work from an organizational standpoint there. But if you go back to that 80 odd percent that have a strategic imperative, how much of that is really about humans? And it's a great question we should definitely start taking away. And just to reference, as, as Joe did, the model is changing. And we know that. That is a known entity. That's something that's not on the far distance horizon. That's something that the pandemic has accelerated for us. And we've lived and breathed through adaptation and the agility. But if I go closer to home, my organization, our DNA and our central point is innovation. And innovation for food and tech from upstream research requires the most growth mindsets you could possibly, the most open-minded humans you could possibly get your hands on. And for the next generation, that's not going to be enough. That's what we want from them, but what do they want from us? They'll want a freedom that almost it's impossible to understand at this moment in time, because we have a lot of systems and process in place that prohibits us. So we have to make a change, certainly in our organization. And it's a pleasure to be part of that, but it does take time. I study offline language as, as an expatriate child, if this is something that I enjoy. Um, so this is not a lesson in semantics, 
But much like music and film, there can often be the illustration of the zeitgeist. The nuance of language here is, is really key. Just to build on all the things that Joe said, we won't be using language like vision and mission in the future because those are words that the organization owns. Millie and the next generation will be talking about purpose. Last week, should I say, on LinkedIn announced a good 40% of their office space will be divested from over the next three years. That's really aggressive. And if you think about how we're going to face, we're going to think about environment, that's more all-encompassing. Environment is something that you, the human being, the animal, the primal, lives within. The same for work-life balance, it's work and life. Even the two words mean that somebody thinks there's a beginning and an end. But we've all seen, especially those who've had the misfortune of homeschooling, you have to blend your life now around a more fluid approach to work-life. So the language work-life will not exist in the future. Another word I've, I mentioned, my father's comment on salary always tickles me and I always, I always tease him about it. Millie will be using words like investment. She won't be talking about a package per se. She'll be talking about something that allows her to be a better human being. And I've got a nice example from Sweden to share in a moment. And the same for words like community. This is a great community, this virtual forum. It's such a shame we can't be together, um, and, but not for long. And I'm hoping that we can all be together in October. But the community is something that, again, back to purpose, you feel a sense of belonging for. And role and job description is another weird semantics of language. I've been to um, dinner parties, not in a long time, I might add. I'm sure neither of you have or are longing to be there, where people say, what is it you do? And I'm always tickled when people then state their job title. That's not what you do. That's, that's the, na the name or the title. Millie's generation will be talking about their role as if it's a calling. And all of those semantic changes, the nuance of the next generation are things, that's intelligence and insights that any leader in their right mind should be factoring in to try and adapt or evolve their strategy. But coming back to that big word, trust, this is one of my favourite analogies. According to Brené Brown, trust is an output. And Joe referenced this. If we put together all of the moments that we have, the time and those experiences together, the output of the behaviours is trust. It's not something you can put on a wall and demand of humans or expect everybody to just understand. And it is nuanced and it is specific to the individuals. Brené Brown's daughter, uh, who goes to school in California, is a third grader and her teacher has a glass jar. I'm, I'm sure many of you have read her books. It's an absolutely fantastic analogy. At the beginning of every week, the children, if they exhibit the right behaviours that were well established at the beginning of the year, that framework was there, they, they gain essentially marbles as a unit and a full jar would yield an extra treat or a break or something mischievous. And of course, anything that is done to uh, dispel um, or encourage distrust, it's removed. It's a very binary way of operating and the currency here is clearly a marble unit. But consider how much time it takes to build trust. As Joe said, you'll have experiences with some individuals where you've built up a memory bank and an experience bank where you've known an individual or a peer or a leader for many years. But the next generation, when they come, will come with the same level of variety and uniqueness in the human canvas as all of us on this call are. It's your life experiences 
it's your formative years that will be able to increase or decrease your propensity for trust. So organisations are going to have to work a lot harder to understand how completely unique we are. If we move into a different type of currency than the marble unit, this is one of my favourite um, things I like to remind people doesn't exist in the world anymore. This is Warren Beatty or Benjamin Franklin, depending on who you believe said it. Time is money. It's a very Wall Street approach. But unfortunately, in a lot of leadership circles and actually the way we currently evaluate business performance, most of the metrics are to do with money. I know myself, it's a P&L or it's shareholder return, dividends, it's cash. And you're taught cash is king. And the leaders that you engage with will have a common understanding of things like profit and loss. And it's about cash or cost. But what I would seek to try and get people to think about is scratch out that bottom word money and think about time as our currency. And how much time can be invested. It's a softer way as you seek to sell in the evaluation of any changes you may want to make whether it's an adaptation of your L&D programme or it's investment in a complete overhaul of the way you acquire talent. All of these things are going to take time. And the same goes for creating intimacy in your organisation and that safety, that psychological safety that Joe referenced. This takes time. If you move into those grassroots for a second and we mentioned that Millie will join an organisation in 15 years' time, 17 years' time, she will already have experiences in her mind she will have a memory bank and she will feel higher or lower a propensity than Bob or Dave that joins with her. And it's important that we understand the right frameworks for our teams and our entire organisation to start aligning a company purpose and a personal purpose. The funny thing is my personal purpose has evolved. I have, as I've changed in my life becoming a mother, my personal purpose and my mission has changed, as I'm sure many of you have had experiences that have changed your personal purpose. And a company organization, whether it's a vision or a mission statement now, even the pandemic, many organizations have sought to adapt their purpose. And the funny thing is I've seen so many organizations over the pandemic where there's been desired attrition or, or a breaking of trust, where unfortunately there hasn't been alignment because there hasn't been time afforded or given especially through coaching, to be able to make those connections. So I would advocate for sure thinking about when you're positioning anything in return on investment, understanding how much time these changes may need to be made and how much they're going to take and then what they will or won't add from a cost perspective. I've got a couple of nice examples to share. This is one of my favourites. Um, we're all talking at the moment about four years ago that plastic was the devil and we're all now all talking in our above the line campaigns on television. People are talking about our um, carbon footprints and our corporate social responsibility. Absolutely brilliant. It's wonderful to see growth in so many key areas like that. But Steve Murrells rather famously said a few weeks ago, what about our human footprint? He said, I have a carbon footprint plan. We've had it for five years at the co-op, but I would like to know what it is I'm going to be doing and how I can influence as a leader to make sure the next generation are accommodated for. He is the father of four and two of his children have severe learning difficulties. And he says, my biggest fear as a father in my personal purpose is that I work for an organization where the personal purpose and the company purpose could be aligned on paving the way for the next generation, whether it's learning difficulties or diversity and inclusion programs. But he said, I want to go one step further. And I work with a population and an ecosystem of suppliers 
where I will now only work with people who behave in the same way as me. So this has gone beyond us and our own organizations. We may differentiate because of our human footprint. If you think about your organizations now, whether you have a service proposition or you're selling a product, whatever it is that you do, your leaders will want to essentially differentiate themselves. Having a really strong human-centered strategy and human footprint could be something that helps your brand equity. And the example I'll give is, you've got a comparison here of a junior account manager for corporate banking. The left-hand column is a British bank and the right-hand column is a Swiss bank. And this is a comp and ben cheat sheet, if you will. And it referenced some of the things that Joe talked about with Netflix earlier. This is a far, far cry in the column on the right from the column on the left. And the right is all for trust cultures. And actually it's now four years old, this program. These banks are comparable. It's not relevant who they are, but they are the same age and the same size. They're well-established mature banks. If these banks want to evolve and they want to get better people finding better connections with corporate accounting, if they want to win business and essentially grow, they need humans that are well-balanced, who have a mental health program, who recognize they can be the best versions of themselves and then are highly loyal as a result. And four years into this transformational program, you can see there's a, a huge amount of reinvestment from the salary component into other areas. And again, much like Steve Murrells and his supply base, this goes a little bit beyond in that the Swedish government are now giving tax benefits to organizations like this, who are ensuring um, that they safeguard health and well-being of organizations like the one on the right which I find really interesting. So you're getting a more of a social imprint with the human uh, footprint. Just down on the left here, you'll see a couple of areas that they've touched on. They have overhauled their talent acquisition program. Now, if you join this bank, you receive a YouTube of your line manager and they will talk about themselves and their personal purpose. And that allows you to decide whether or not you want to join. And then as a candidate, the next part of the process is talking entirely about your personalities, not about qualifying your functional skills. That's almost completely the reverse of how 90% of our current processes in my organization are. So we do need to consider evolving many components of what's in the HR domain and changing the human-centered part of our strategy. So I'm talking about time in and time out. And of course, none of us are in sales. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't be on this type of environment. We're all warriors of people. And I seek only to recruit that when you're positioning any change you want to incite, consider that you're selling to somebody who thinks in three ways. What is on my horizon? Reference Millie in the next generation and reference how you transition the next generation into your existing population. That's the horizon and the, the future scope. These individuals have a higher, already we know this from the education system, a higher propensity for innovation and blue sky thinking. If that is part of your strategy, then they are the how. In your strategy, I would encourage you very much to spend time on auditing. Uh, we've done it recently uh, locally in the UK. It's been a very interesting, honest eye opener. And I champion that for sure, that, that transparency and that grotesque mirror in areas where we really just don't have enough time invested currently to be able to sustain finding the very best talent 
to be differentiating in certain research. And then I mentioned measure. Do ask yourself on your measurements currently in your organization, is there room for improvement? I'm pretty confident there is. It's not about, as Laszlo Box says, so ex-Google um, author of um, the book Work Rules, it's now a few years old, but there's a whole chapter on how he cannot stand listening to attrition figures being cited like deaths and births. It's not indicative as a litmus of how happy people are and how trusting they feel of each other. We need to consider how we evolve our measurement and whether there is a human and cultural measure at the moment in any of our snapshots and metrics. I chance that there aren't. We all have commitments. Many PLCs in Britain have commitments for our CSR agenda, but what is the measure for your human footprint? So I'll come back out of my sales mode and encourage all of you to think about selling your stories internally. And I would then ask more on a personal note, if you look at these little faces and you go away and find the Millies in the next generation as a reference point, and you observe what it is that they, how they're evolving and adapting. It's a very interesting daily reminder of how it's hard to create a contribution, all of us now, when we didn't have the same education systems. Start interviewing, this is something we've done. We've started interviewing the next generation, obviously not a nine-year-old because she can't say engineering properly. But we have started talking to young bakers of 17 and 18, real crafts, women and men who want to be able to add value in a very different way than we'd ever foreseen. And I mentioned this is the face of the future. The last thing I would like to invite you to consider is a more personal one, is what is your legacy? Each of us have an opportunity to be people warriors. Everybody is on this call because we believe in the same thing. And that is beautiful and unique. I would invite you to think about whether you're far off from that point of going into the sunset or it's only a few years away from contribution um, and pension time. Think about how you want your people legacy to impact on the lives of the next generation. Thank you so much for listening.